The views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or the late Chief Leonard Krodok. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 29th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests are Kim Callanan, President and CEO of Compassion and Choices, and Matt Whitaker, National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion and Choices, to talk about how proactive planning can benefit any of us, all of us, to make the end of life our own. We'll hear as well about the progress being made on Senate Bill 380 that would renew the End of Life Options Act in the state of California. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guests for the full hour are Kim Callanan, President and CEO of Compassion and Choices, and Matt Whitaker, National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion and Choices. It's time again to examine end-of-life circumstances. These individuals have their hands on the rudder of this all-important milestone. Compassion and Choices is the nation's oldest and largest and most active nonprofit working to improve care and expand options for end of life. And so I had Samantha Tread on about a couple of months ago, and I'm so glad that these two in the organization, Keeping Building organization, are here to join us today. Let me introduce both of them briefly. Prior to being their CEO, Kim Callanan was the Chief Program Officer And during her combined tenure at Compassion Choices, she's played a leadership role in authorizing and implementing medical aid in dying into five new jurisdictions, California, Colorado, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, and New Jersey. Kimberly regularly authors thought leadership pieces that detail the stark contrast between the healthcare system consumers want and existing policies and practices in end-of-life care. She's frequently invited to speak at conferences, testify before state legislatures, conduct policy briefings, and serve on committees as a subject matter expert on end-of-life care options. She presented the National Academies of Science Physician-Assisted Death Workshop, served on the Institute of Medicine's Roundtable on Quality Care of People with Serious Illness, addressed the American Society of Aging's National Forum, and spoke at the Center for Medicare Advocacy Voices of Medicare Summit. Prior to work with Compassion Choices, she spent two decades developing campaigns to engineer social change, addressing uninsured Americans, and improving children's health. She completed her bachelor's degree in government, from Oberlin College, her master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University, and a graduate certificate in public health from the University of South Florida, and a certificate in the fundamentals of gerontology through a joint program offered by the American Society on Aging and the University of Southern California Davis School of Gerontology. My other guest, Matt Whitaker, is, as I said, the National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion Choices, supporting medical education, 
end of life planning and client services nationwide. His various roles at Compassion Choices include state director for California and Oregon as they launched campaigns to increase access to end of life choices. Matt speaks about bioethics and person-centered care across the country and has testified as an expert resource on end-of-life choice to numerous state agencies and legislative committees. Matt completed his master's in theological studies with an emphasis in integrative theology from the United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities and a specialty certificate in hospice and palliative care chaplaincy and is a board certified music therapist. Aside from his duties at Compassionate Choices, Matt also serves on the board of the Northwest Association for Deaf Education and Bereavement Support. Kim Callanan comes to us today from her office in Washington, DC, and Matt Whitaker comes to us from his office in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kim Callanan and Matt Whitaker. Thanks so much for having us, Claudia. It's wonderful to be with you, Claudia. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to have both of you with the, I mean, the clearly the expertise in this most important milestone that's, as I'm going to keep saying throughout the interview that gets it just not given its due attention. So you've recently commemorated the fifth year anniversary of California's End of Life Option Act and the current legislation underway to amend and renew. It's going to be, it's being sunset if it's not renewed, this act. So after having attended your recent forum, I was left with concerns and both of you are making yourselves available to address them with us now. So as I said, generally speaking, the end of life is such an important milestone with so many different paths. And it's a step that treated in an ad hoc manner, it undermines the importance. You two, you steer us and you, you influence policymakers toward the options, realizing the most intentional ends that we can take here. So including documenting our preferences to the end as you talk about in many of the materials that you offer. So you are constantly facing that most people don't realize until it's too late, the value of the autonomy, the, the range of choices. So let's look at those conundrums and we'll look at them. I mainly want to concentrate on individuals' dementia dealing with the, those complexities of end of life options, as well as the work you're doing with individuals over all ethnicities and California's legislature in addressing the availability of options during the current session. So there are with different progressions of diseases, there's sort of a different calendar to what the end of life patterns are. And so, um, I mean, admittedly, they're all really different. So Compassion and Choices has spent years on sort of making distinctions between those different kinds of paths that an individual is faced with. Yeah, Claudia, so if you're talking um, specifically about a dementia diagnosis, this is obviously one of the diseases um, that is really on people's mind. One in three seniors dies having some form of dementia. 
And so it is absolutely critical that people before the onset of dementia think about what their values and priorities are should they have dementia so that their loved ones are able to take care of them. And I'll use the story um, of my grandmother as an example. So first, it's important to recognize that the, if you think about dementia, this is a disease that's on the rise that in essence, man has exacerbated through our innovations and our success in medicine. So 50 years ago, people, you know, 100 years ago, people didn't get dementia or very few people got dementia. People died from heart attacks. Um, people died from strokes. Um, and um, fortunately, with the success of medicine, we have been able to extend and prolong life for years. Um, and so the average length of time that somebody lives is far longer um, than it used to be. However, in doing that, what we've also done is um, we've now made it so that um, life is extended, but you're seeing that we haven't figured out yet how to extend um, the length of time that the mind can live. And so more people are ending up at the end of their lives um, with dementia. And, and the number of people, I think you're at like one out of two when you're over 80, end up with some form of dementia. So this is something that's on people's mind. But the good news about it is that if you take steps in advance, people do have choices. There's a small percentage of people that will get early onset dementia that's taking place, you know, when they're younger, in their 50s, perhaps. But most people are getting dementia much later in their life. And if you think about what happens much later in your life, most people also have some type of a secondary disease later in their life. They might have heart disease. Um, and be on heart medicine, they may have kidney disease and be on kidney medicine, they might be on something for hypertension or cholesterol, or they may get pneumonia, it might be that they get, you know, a short term disease. Um, for years, pneumonia was known as the old man's disease. Why was it known as the old man's friend, I should say it was known as the old man's friend, because it was the way that an older person could die a gentle death would be to get pneumonia and allow pneumonia to take their life. So right now within medicine, the default mode is that we continue to treat somebody with dementia as if the goal of care is the extension of life. However, for many people, and we know from our survey data that about six out of 10 people do not want to live in a state of advanced dementia when they no longer could recognize their loved ones and couldn't feed themselves or clothe themselves, that for them, um, that they would much prefer um, to allow death to take place over the continued extension of life. So what one can do right now, if that is important to them, is you can document your preferences. And I'm going to let Matt talk a little bit about the tools that we've created at Compassion and Choices that allow somebody to do that. But what's important to understand um, about this is that this is all about what the patient's preference is. So there are people who would want to live in a state of advanced dementia, and the tools allow for that as well. But that's typically what's going to happen unless you disrupt the system and do something different. So I just wanted to be sure that everyone understood that we're not suggesting um, that people have to choose to escape dementia sooner. We are letting people know that, that if that is what you would want, that you do have an option right now for most people.
So, and when before we break it down into the tools and all the wonderful things, instruments that you have available. So I hear you talk about patients, but these kinds of documentations are sort of pre-patient preferences that are being mapped out, right? So Claudia, that's, it can be, yeah, that's a great point. And thank you for clarifying that. I, I shouldn't have been saying patients. It's really people. You do this before or at the early stage of the onset of a disease. So right now, for people who do not have dementia, this is the perfect time for you to pull out our values and priorities tool and think about what it is that you would want should you get dementia. It is also an appropriate time to use the tools um, if you're early on and you still have mental capacity, people can live for three, four, five, six years with dementia and still have mental capacity depending on how early that dementia is caught and what the progression of that disease is. And the history of any kind of brain health. Which, and I, I'll bring that up too. And so I think the tall, tall order for organizations like Compassion and Choices is this broader cultural overlay of the taboos, not just of death being addressed, the inevitability of death, in, especially in our American culture where you're based, where we all are, are speaking to each other, is it's uh, the other taboo is dementia. I mean, to bring it up, it's sort of, it's like a, the, uh, it's like the uh, typhoid Mary, like people want to run in the other direction. They're just horribly scandalized about it, unless they're familiar with the disease, they're familiar because they associate it with a loved one that had to manage the disease. So they're sort of less fearful, but overcoming the taboos of death and dementia is a huge tall order that you have to address, do you not? Absolutely, Claudia. Um, and that's something that, that we and, and many others are doing. Um, and I think having some really good success, part of the success while medical aid and dying laws are not addressed specifically for somebody with dementia, um, the success of passing those laws in recent years across the country is evidence of the progress that we're making in getting people to recognize the importance of accepting the inevitability of death. When you think about dementia, one of the reasons that people don't want to talk about it and that it's so taboo is because there's a feeling that if you get it, there's nothing that you can do about it. The good news is there has been some um, recent medication that's been approved. It's fairly controversial in terms of whether it works or doesn't work, and we don't have a position related to that. But as people are um, more successful at coming up with cures or ways to delay dementia, that will also, I think, help to break down the taboos um, around dementia. Thank and, you. you. Know, yes, Matt. And, and Claudia, you know, I think a, a big piece of this as well is that the way we like to frame the conversation, and I think the way the conversation is changing, is that this isn't talking about the taboo of death. This is really talking about how it is that a person wants to live out their life. It's talking about what's meaningful to them, uh, how it is that they want to spend the time that they have left, what it is that they want to prioritize. And in light of those things, what type of decisions need to be made? And as you said, there's often this taboo around talking about it, but I find the reframe is helpful in that. And when we talk about dementia, you're right. People are afraid to talk about it in the same way they're afraid to talk about death, but it, that doesn't mean that it's not touching us. As Kim said, you know, one in three seniors is currently dying with some form of dementia. 
Um, the Alzheimer's Association says that more than 11 million Americans right now provide unpaid caregiving support for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia. So the degrees of separation between any one of us and people that are going through this process right now is uh, we're all close to it. We're all connected to it, whether we want to talk about it or not. And so for us, it's, it's imperative that we have these conversations and that we reframe them, that this is not just about the moment of death for a person. This is about exploring what it is that gave their life and gives their life meaning and value and how it is that we honor that in the decisions that we make and raising the fact that there are even decisions to make when it comes to end of life, even upstream from the dementia question. Uh, many people don't even know when we say the words end of life options, what, what yeah, that what's even the means. domain? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, Funny if and I could just, we have that. If I could just build on one thing that Matt said that is just so important is that the other big myth that's out there is that people think the moment you get dementia, that your life is over, that you lose cognition, that there's no more joy. And the reality is that people can live with dementia for many, many years, still getting a lot of meaning out of their life before they hit what you typically think of when you think of dementia. So that's another myth that's out there. Um, and actually through using these tools, you can see the trajectory that takes place and that, you know, there could be many, many moments when a person has dementia where there's still a lot of joy left in their life. Well, I must say, I have a, a personal anecdote where a loved one had increasingly developed process dementia and in a particular setting where it was considered a very dicey moment and because of the setting, the loved one with dementia had so tapped, had tapped into such positive feelings in the, I'm not gonna overshare on this one listeners, I guess, but the person's capacity rallied in that moment to, actually be participating in the ritual that was underway. So that, I mean, we were all absolutely uh, uh, sh shocked, might not be an overstatement, at how much capacity this loved one presented in the setting. Now that of course, a, a couple of days later, the capacity sort of slid back again, but to speak to, to Kim's point is, it's a, it's a very odd process. It's not stepwise, it's not a, uh, the arc can sort of sort of loop back and forward it's uh, with the dementia's process. Yeah, that's exactly right, Claudia. It's not necessarily linear. And that's one of the reasons why I think our tools are so powerful. Um, and if it would be appropriate, I'd love for Matt to describe yes. the tools because I think it will really help people to understand and feel empowered that there are options because part of what's so hard about dementia is people don't recognize that they do have options right now. So um, Matt, yes, and Matt, before you talk about the tools, I just want to let my listeners know who's my guest are Kim Callanan, President and CEO of Compassion and Choices, and Matt Whitaker, National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion and Choices here on Ask a Leader. Matt, please. Yeah, well, you know, Claudia and Kim, you both bring up really great points, which is that you know, the progression of dementia is not a one-size-fits-all situation. In fact, I, I once heard someone who was a, a trainer on dementia care say, you know, if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. 
because we are all unique human beings and the way that this disease manifests itself can be quite different for people. And it can be, as you said, a journey that is up and down and backwards and forwards and, and has all kinds of different idiosyncrasies for that person. And so in thinking about how it was that we could empower people to plan for that unique situation, there were a couple of things that were important to us. One, whatever we built needed to be something that could adapt to that, to the ever-changing kind of uh, landscape of a person's progression. And that's really clear with the tools. But... Oh, I'm glad to hear that, Claudia. I'm really glad to no, hear I'm, that. No, it's a question. I, I mean, it can be. Oh. I mean, I took I took some of the tools and uh, completed them as a, not not apply yet, folks, but and, which people, everybody should visit those tools on the, the Compassion and Choice website so they can see, they, well, they can, not only can they get think ahead, but they can start some interesting conversations. But so it, it can be adapted to conditions. And it's a question, a rhetorical one for listeners to anticipate their question about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So our tools really can adapt to all the various situations that a person may find themselves in. So our, our tool that we really recommend that people use for planning for a dementia diagnosis or for people who are in the early stages of dementia and are trying to plan what their care may look like in the future is called our Dementia Values and Priorities Tool. And it's available for free at our website, which is compassionandchoices.org. And that tool allows a person to go through a series of 15 prompts. And these prompts kind of outline what the progression of the illness might look like. And for each of those prompts, it asks you how you might want your care preferences to change. Would you want all medical interventions that are possible? Would you want to change your code status, meaning that if you were in some type of emergent situation going through cardiac arrest, that you would want to allow natural death in that situation? Or how would about you... a urinary, urinary tract infection? Exactly. It's, Claudia, the next piece I was going to refer to, which is, it, would you want uh, treatment for other uh, illnesses that you have that aren't related to your dementia. So that could be something like a urinary tract infection. It could be pneumonia, as Kim was talking about mm -hmm. earlier. could be having your pacemaker turned off if that's something that, uh, or, or allowing it to die if it needs to be replaced. Uh, it could be something as simple as making sure that you're not on uh, any type of medication for heart disease that you've been facing for years and years. All of these different things that are sustaining a person's quantity of life it's asking the question of how would you want to change that in light of what your quality of life is at any particular point. So a person goes through, answers those prompts, and then is also given the opportunity to create combinations of those things, to type in uh, pieces that are particularly important to them. So for example, if quality of life for you means being able to spend time with uh, your loved ones outdoors. If that changes, how is it that you would want your care preferences to change so that we're not stuck in this kind of cookie cutter model of advanced care planning that kind of says, well, it's either X or Y. It's a very black and white situation, but instead you have something that is flexible and that you can talk about with your loved ones, with the people who are providing your care and make it abundantly clear what some of those lines in the sand are that for you represent a change in quality of life that you would be uncomfortable with, a change that would suggest that we need to start doing something differently and empowering those people to do so on your behalf when you're unable to speak for yourself in that moment. And, and one other thing, Claudia, is that you were talking about this individual who was in a surrounding that really supported them having a, 
engagement with those that were around them. And, and Kim talked about the quality of life that is available to people in the early stages of dementia. And these tools also are important for making sure that people stay in those supportive environments. We know that people's conditions decline and change when they are pulled out of familiar environments when they have dementia and placed into emergency rooms or hospitals or undergo intensive treatment that may not increase their quality of life. And so we're trying to empower people around that as well. You know, something that we've seen right now due to the COVID epidemic is that in the United States, Alzheimer's and dementia's deaths have increased uh, yes. during the COVID-19 pandemic. excess deaths that epidemiologists talk about. Exactly. And also that uh, rates and occurrences of dementia are increasing due to it as people are spending these times in hospitals and, and undergoing these interventions. And we just want to make sure that people feel empowered to make sure that they're able to stay in those supportive environments, that they're able to continue doing things that give their life quality. And that when the time comes, those who are helping them make decisions are able to do so in a way that is in line with their values. So Matt, you, when you bring up how it's an insurance, these tools are trying to be an insurance to stay in a supportive environment, that is some dicey territory to work with when let's say the dementia patient is becoming a bit more, is acting out. I don't, that's not the medical term. And maybe that's like a politically, medically incorrect term to use, but when there's the sort of, there are sort of psychotic bouts, there are, I don't, there's phantom recollections. There's, there's that sort of negative processing of Alzheimer's. So does, do the tools ensure that despite that kind of progression of dementia, that there is a supportive environment that is, wrestling with that very, very difficult to deal with kind of dynamic, that just a difficult disposition of a dementia person. Sure. Well, and, and you, you raise something that is oftentimes a, a big fear, right, for people who are looking at dementia, which is this change in mood status. Correct. Or, uh, exactly. The, uh, aggression or anxiety or certain things like that that can come up. And certainly in our tool, we talk about that as, as one of our markers that people are able to look at and say, you know, this is a scenario that would be untenable for me where I would want my preferences to change. But let me also in this moment direct you to another, our other dementia tool, yes. which is called the Dementia Diagnosis Decoder, which is a tool that allows a person or their caregiver to go through and create a list of evidence-based questions to ask a physician or a treatment team before a person undergoes any type of test or treatment or is deciding what their care should look like. And I raise this at this particular moment, Claudia, because many times when we look at behaviors, quote, behaviors of people with dementia, which is things that might pull them from the supportive environment that they're in. This they're super fraught. That's why uh, it's, I'm so glad you're willing to take this up. Absolutely, quite well. And just for so the listeners know, I began my career working in a geriatric neuropsychiatry hospital. And so I'm highly familiar with the types of things that pull people from their supportive living setting and oftentimes place them in uh, settings where they're trying to figure out how to manage these pieces. But, you know, many times those behaviors manifest themselves when there is a change in, in situation. And I'll give you an example. 
a person is pulled from that supportive environment and taken out to a doctor's appointment or something that is unfamiliar. And in our diagnosis decoder tool, we give people questions to ask at each of those junctures to decide whether or not this is worth it, whether or not this helps with the quality of life for that person. So a question that comes up often in that tool is, what is this test for? How would we approach treatment differently if we didn't have the results? Well, something that happens again all too often is people who are in the mid to advanced stages of dementia are taken out of a supportive environment, could be at home, could be in assisted living, wherever it is that home is for them, are picked up by unfamiliar people, are taken to an unfamiliar place and are subjected to tests that they don't understand by people who aren't trained on how to interact with people who have dementia. And it could be something as simple as a routine blood draw, but you can imagine yourself as someone who's confused, who doesn't understand what's going on, having a stranger come in and poke you in the arm with something. And in that moment, we see kicking, biting, hitting, anxiety, aggression, all of these different things that when you kind of step back and look at it, actually, feel fairly rational for that person to respond in that way. Well, and actually, I want to have wanna... been avoided by a person pausing and saying, what are we doing and why are we doing this? And so that's the other half of this conversation is not just the planning ahead, but it's also giving people tools in those moments as we're making care decisions for a person of pausing and saying, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Will we do anything different based on this? And does this support this person's quality of life as we're in this moment? So uh, pardon me for talking over you earlier, that, uh, that with the sundowner syndrome with dementia patients, that the whole, the whole schedule may be off. Maybe they haven't even had uh, some kind of a, a square meal to start their day if, they're, if the appointment is before they're really ready to, to leave their residence with their schedule. I mean, the, that whole timing device could be setting up that whole office visit for a failure and therefore not a supportive setting, not a supportive schedule. Exactly. Well, and you're right. You, you bring up the, the sundowning piece of things and people really who have mental and physical exhaustion from a full day of, of trying to keep up with unfamiliar or confusing environments or have an upset internal clock and, and are mixed up or, or whatever it might be. But the point of this is that, you know, if we're trying to support people and living as high of a quality of life as possible for as long as possible and supporting them in the decisions necessary to make sure that the things that they outline as being uh, non-congruent with what they value, doing all of those pieces requires heavy communication. It requires um, tools for those that are helping in the shared decision-making process as the dementia diagnosis progresses. It requires all of these things. And it requires us facing these issues head on, as you said, Claudia, despite the taboo, um, despite our hesitancy around it. And so I think that's why it's so important in any of the issues that we're talking about, be the one that you just raised or be it the over-treatment that often happens in the last months of life for people or the uh, revolving door that happens with emergency rooms in this country when it comes to people who have advanced dementia. All of those pieces, if we're going to solve them, it's going to take these types of conversations that our tools uh, help people engage in. So if I could just pick up on what Matt said, because I think it's so important. And you, you mentioned this earlier, Claudia, how right now with end-of-life care that people get all kinds of aggressive treatments at the end of life. And um, the reality is for a dementia patient, 
this really could be very counterproductive. And I'll just use a recent op-ed that was in the Washington Post as an example. It was written by a board-certified emergency room physician with more than 30 years of experience named Dr. Jeffrey Hosta. And the headline of the article read, doctors are torturing dementia patients at the end of life and it's totally unnecessary. It's a business model, right? It's a business model, but what he shares is, and he uses the word torture, that this 88-year-old woman with advanced dementia comes into the emergency room. Her mind is gone. She doesn't know her own name. Like other patients with advanced dementia, she's agitated. She's aggressive. She's immobile. I mean, her quality of life is just dismal. You know, as matches point to, we've moved her out of the setting that she's familiar with to this unfamiliar setting. She arrives in the emergency rooms and her loved ones ask the physician to do everything possible to keep her alive. And so what happens next is medicine steps in and they give her IV antibiotics. They put in an uncomfortable urinary catheter. They do CPR, they break some of her ribs, and they force a breathing tube, a long tube down her throat, attached to mechanical ventilation and put her on life support. So that is this woman with advanced dementia with an abysmal quality of life, end of life experience, because we are not doing what Matt is suggesting we all need to do, which is planning. And those loved ones, thought that they were doing what they should do, which is, you know, trying to keep their loved one alive for as long as possible. But we know from our data, the vast majority of people would not choose to die that way. I mean, she died a day later and she was tortured at the end of her life. And unfortunately, that experience is not uncommon. Two out of five people with dementia receive at least one invasive medical procedure in the last three months of their life. That's horrific. It's horrific. Um, But there are options. And, you know, because dementia is a disease that man has created through our amazing, you know, the progression in the, of medicine, by the time people get dementia, they typically have a host of other medical diseases. So you could make the choice just not to go to the emergency room and to not get the aggressive treatments like this poor woman got, or you could even make the choice to more proactively withdraw other treatments. My grandmother is a great example. She got pneumonia. We didn't ever have that conversation with her. So what did we do? We do what every other family does. We treated her pneumonia, but we were treating her the pneumonia of a woman who I am absolutely sure would have preferred for her life to have ended at that moment. And pneumonia would have been a very peaceful way for her to have died. And we extended our life by a couple of years. So it is so important that people think about what it is that they would want. It's not just a gift for the dying person, but it's also a gift for the loved ones because those loved ones are working within a society that treats you as if you're a bad person, if you don't do everything possible to keep your loved alive. So you really need to know from your loved one that you would want a different option if you were in in that situation so that you can give them the gift of what they would want instead of kind of falling into the typical pattern within medicine and within our society. I'm trying to figure out how 
that or maybe there's that's a, a tool you're producing at this point the the split screen of a family or let's say a social circle a tight one a small intimate social circle the split screen of them having a quality conversation an expansive conversation about end of life preferences i like the word preferences that it covers everything really at versus this kind of horrific encounter in the ER where it's all tubes and electronics that are being forced upon a person. Is there, I mean, it's just like, what a choice. It's like an, a complete opposite sort of registering of humanity. Yeah, so we, we have those tools um, built. You can use that dementia values and priorities tool that Matt spoke about earlier in order to really guide that conversation. You're going through 15 different markers. You're thinking about what level of care you would want. It then produces a customized advanced directive. And then you use that to have a conversation with your loved ones, with your doctor. And that's such an important part of the process because you need to have a strong healthcare advocate who is going to make sure that your documented wishes are what takes place at the end of life. We also on our website, if you go under Compassion and Choices, Plan Your Care, we also have a really pretty valuable Plan Your Care end of life guide that is also um, very valuable and just a host of other tools and information there. Matt, is there anything I left out of that list that you would recommend for people? No, that's uh, you're absolutely right, Kim. Those tools are important. And Claudia, they set up people to have that side of the screen where things go so much differently, where we're approaching these things with intentionality and with care versus in this emergent fashion, where we're responding to a kind of a conveyor belt that we've been put on because we haven't done this work. And, you know, as you said at the top of the hour, it's so important for us to engage in these conversations. And, and I love the visual that you gave of that dichotomy of that split screen and of the difference that it can make if we just choose to be courageous in this way and to engage in what are vulnerable and important conversations. And, uh, you know, we're all held up in doing so by our own hangups, our own fears, our own traumas that we may be having to process from having gone through that scenario of things not going well, of watching a loved one receive things, interventions that they would not have wanted. But in facing that head on, we have an ability to change the culture around this and to create a real shift. And I think the exciting thing about Kim and I's work that we do every day is that we get to witness people mm -hmm. who are trying to create a new reality for themselves and their families, be that because they've been inspired by those who have done things differently or because they've witnessed the cautionary tale that you outline of the family watching all the interventions happen and wondering what it is that that loved one would have wanted and whether or not they're doing the right thing and processing that grief afterwards in light of the trauma that they may have gone through. Matt, I just wanna dial down though, what we're, what we're suggesting people, what they're performing at, you're saying, have them be courageous. And I just wanna dial it down to have them just be respectful of the loved one, respecting them. What does a human wish, desire as a, you know, courage, that's like asking a lot of capacity. And I think respectful is a kind of, that's like a, the, the gateway drug to uh, getting end of life discussions going. Sure. Well, and respect is what happens when you honor those wishes that you know about. And for many people, 
the courageous part is beginning that conversation far ahead of time and saying, I'm willing to engage in this conversation and to tell someone what it means to respect me in those moments, or what we say more often, what it means to show love to me in those moments. How is it that you show love to me in that moment that I'm in need? Let me tell you how. And again, that's so important when we talk about dementia, because it can be tough to figure out how it is that you show love for a, a person, how it is that you respect a person, how it is that you honor a person in those instances where they're unable to articulate it for themselves and giving people that guidance can be so important. And, and again, like I said, you know, Kim and I are fortunate enough that we get to help people engage in these conversations on a daily basis and see the fruit of those labors as people do do this in a different way. But um, there's a lot of work that needs to happen. So I would just encourage anyone who's listening to go to our website, compassionandchoices.org, go to that plan your care tab, look at those resources. Um, There's resources there about how to start these conversations with your loved ones, resources about how it is that you discern what it is that you would want at the end of life and start that process. And, uh, and I think you'll be better off for it. And uh, I've found that in in engaging in it, I find that my day to day is filled with a little bit more wonder and a little bit more quality as I, as I kind of reflect on the fact that it's a gift. And that's the reverse side of, of talking about the taboo oftentimes of death. Precisely. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guests today are Kim Callanan, President and CEO of Compassion and Choices, and Matt Whitaker, National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion and Choices. And so the last item before we move on to what California's progress is being made on legislation dealing with renewing a to-be-sunset end-of-life options law, when we're dealing with a dementia progression, there becomes a point where cognitively they're not able to express where they are at, what their needs are at that point. And so I, I would like to have both of you speak to the point of how can we somehow ensure that when that dementia patient is trapped in their body where they are faced with an inability to express that they are in pain so that their pain can in fact be managed? Well, you know, I think a a big piece of this is that pre-planning piece of things, Claudia, because all of these documents that we're talking about really come to play when a person loses the ability to speak for themselves, when they no longer have the capacity to make those decisions, to understand what it means to be informed and to give consent in these instances and all of those pieces. And so when you talk about, you know, how it is, how is it that a person, their pain is treated appropriately, that they're given proper symptom management as things arise, that palliation of symptoms is a priority versus elongating life at all costs, that those things are addressed in these documents, but also accompanied with a conversation, both with those people who are going to be helping make those decisions, the family member or close friend, whoever it is that's identified in a person's documents. Um, But also when you talk about this, this piece around kind of aggressive symptom management, also with the physicians and the care team who will most likely be helping in those instances. And that could be a person's primary care physician who they've known and had a relationship for with for a long time, 
or it could be, you know, the physician that's managing care within the supportive living setting that they're going to be living in, should their needs uh, become higher, or the director of nursing at their retirement community that they're in, whoever that person is, who's going to be helping through this process, making it abundantly clear that for you, again, quality of life, symptom management, palliation of symptoms is of highest priority. And even if that symptom management may cause your death to come sooner, that for you, it is worth it, that quality of life is paramount. And making those things abundantly clear really gives a green light in those ethical considerations for people as they're deciding how it is that you might want to be cared for. And I would just add to what Matt said, um, that when you're doing that planning to really think hard about who you want your healthcare proxy to be, I think people often default and choose um, their, their partner as the healthcare proxy. And sometimes that person is not actually the best healthcare proxy. You want to find somebody who is really going to be willing to carry out your values and priorities. You want someone who is strong and is able to navigate the healthcare system and is able to really um, separate what they want for themselves versus what it is that you would want. And someone who's really um, is, is willing to speak up to power and to, to doctors and isn't that and is you know not afraid to sort of say what um, what it is that you would want. So think about that. Sometimes that's your spouse, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes you might have a friend or it might be a daughter or a son, but identifying who that healthcare proxy is and who a backup would be if that person's not available is a really, really important part of that planning process. I appreciate that's a very important point I hadn't even thought of before and that a default can be... <laughs> Uh, could offer bad outcomes, but I, I still, I want to get to this finest, finest point. So we know that the palliative care, we want to build that into our options in our documentation, but pain will come at a moment. Pain isn't maybe a constant, but I, I just am trying to get at the point where someone has a certain sensation. I mean, the, the, I mean, they're not able to express the level of pain if they're cognitively impaired by dementia at a certain point. So I don't know how pain is managed when they're, the communication, the cognitive capacity is so compromised. A yeah, fine so, calibration of pain management. So Claudia, neither Matt or I are physicians. And I think this question is really- It's a medical know, one. It's a medical question. What our tools really do is they, and, and where our focus really is, is on helping a person be able to choose the point at which um, they would want to allow a natural death to take place. Um, and so it could be that they document that if I'm in a certain, if you can tell I'm in a certain amount of pain, that would be the point for me. Um, but that would have to be visible in some clear way. You could add that as a marker to your tool. But, you know, in terms of the best way to care for a dementia patient who is in pain, if the answer for that person is not that that's the moment that I would want to allow a natural death to take place. Um, I would ask that question, maybe find a, a, a physician who's a dementia expert and, um, and get their thoughts around that. I don't want Matt or I to overstep into uh, and pretend we have a medical degree. We don't. Right, right. But it, it is, it, once it was brought to my attention, maybe some eight or nine years ago, I thought, wow, that that's a pretty bad place to be where you can't express your own pain. And yeah. I, I would like to have a very big insurance policy against that ever happening. 
in my case or anybody for anybody, I wouldn't want them to be in that situation. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'd like to spend the last bit of our time together on where California's legislature's at with the Senate Bill 380. Any updates that you would like to offer? It's, it's moving right along right now. So where are we at and what listeners role might be weighing in with their support of this legislation? Thanks, Claudia. Let me first just start by um, making sure that people know what Senate Bill 380 is. I know that Samantha was on a few weeks ago, but just in case people missed that um, episode, what the California End of Life Option Act does is it allows a terminally ill, mentally capable person who has a prognosis of six months or less to live, it allows them to request a prescription for medication from their doctor that they would then be able to take themselves should they decide to, which would allow them to end their suffering and die peacefully. It's entirely optional for the doctor and for the patient. So participation is entirely optional. I mean, a very small number of people will choose to use the option, but it brings profound peace of mind to all terminal, to many terminally ill Californians because they know that if their suffering becomes too great, they have the option. So this law was implemented five years ago. It was passed, um, but it was passed with a sunset provision. And that sunset provision says if it's not reauthorized, um, then the law will go away. In addition, over that five-year period, we've been able to collect a tremendous amount of data that tells us how the law is working. And the good news is we know that thousands of Californians have been able to access the law and it's brought them peace of mind. Um, And so we know the law is working as intended. We know there's been no abuse or coercion as a result of the law. But unfortunately, what we also know is that there are too many unnecessary regulatory roadblocks in place. There are very strict criteria. It's about a 13-step process for a dying person to be able to get through in order to get that prescription and be able to to take it um, on their own terms. And so what this legislation, SB 380, does is it reauthorizes the law and makes it permanent. It also, right now, one of those 13 steps is a 15-day waiting period. And that waiting period comes after the person has already navigated a very, very lengthy process that often takes over a month in and of itself. Um, And so this bill reduces the 15-day waiting period down to 48 hours. It also improves transparency of healthcare facilities and requiring them to post their policies on their website, because right now, unfortunately, patients don't know whether or not um, they're going to end up in a facility where they're not able to get this option, and that really delays their ability to access the law. Um, And then there's a couple of other um, smaller provisions within the law um, that are there in order to um, clarify and improve the process that are like making sure medical providers are properly documenting things um, and clarifying that the medication can be administered within a healthcare facility. So right now in the process, the law has made its way all the way through the Senate side. So we have completed on the Senate side. Um, Earlier this week, it was passed out of the House um, Health Committee. 
um, and it has made its way now to the, the Assembly Judiciary Committee. So um, the stop after that is Assembly Appropriations and then the full floor, and then it would make its way to the governor if it makes it all the way through that process. So then people can still stay in touch, still nurture their legislators to, to stay, to keep supporting this. Absolutely. Underway. If you have legislators on the Senate side, call them. Um, if they voted in favor of it and thank them on the House side, um, you want to continue to educate them about why this law is important. Let them know it's important to you. Um, if you go to the Compassion and Choices website and you go to the um, Take Action um, and you go to In Your State, California, it will automatically help you generate emails to your various different members. Um, so we would definitely encourage you to do this. Um, we are uh, working on this legislation with our sister organization, the Compassion and Choices Action Network, which is our C4 entity, is the lead sponsor um, for this bill, working with um, Senator um, Eggman. And I hope I haven't commingled your C3 and C4 roles, so I hope that's okay. I, I don't think we're doing that. Uh, but I want to sort of bring to listeners' attention what the meaning of the the 15-day waiting period versus the 48-hour waiting period, it would give everyone on that patient's team a chance to focus on what they need to focus on as opposed to some kind of bureaucratic song and dance. I mean, that the quality of the end of life is improved just by having allowing the patient and the circle to deal with what they want immediately deal with instead of these sort of bureaucratic hoops of the previous law. Claudia, that's absolutely right. And what we know is that people don't get the prescription and then immediately run out and take it. The prescription is peace of mind for them. They know yes. that if their suffering becomes too great, they have an option. Um, and then they hang on to it. A third of the people never even take it. Um, and others hang on to it for days, weeks, months, until they hit a time where they're having multiple days in a row where the discomfort is just too high. And really the only one who knows how much suffering is too much is the patient. Um, and what we're trying to do with this legislation is really put the decision-making back into the hands of the patient. So as I close and thank you both, I just, I want to register finally that the dividends of taking steps throughout this whole process that you two have been bringing to this interview, just all of the intangible dividends by taking any of these steps is huge. That's absolutely true, Claudia. I can tell, I say I was put in the position of being a healthcare proxy for somebody that I had not had conversations with. This was long before I worked at Compassion and Choices and it was an agonizing experience. And I now watch people across the country relive that experience. And when you have the responsibility of being somebody's healthcare proxy, which it will default to you if you're a partner of somebody and you've never had conversations with them and you're having to make life and death decisions, it is gut-wrenching and it is awful. So I would encourage people to do this for yourself, to do this for your loved ones, you know, it can really be a gift and a failure to do it can have a pretty significant consequence for you and for your loved ones. And Matt, as we close together, you would like to close with? Well, I will just reiterate the, the gift that having these conversations about death and dying and end of life and what it is that we value and what gives our life meaning 
are the types of things that infuse all of our moments uh, with more meaning and more joy. And it, it works sometimes in the opposite way that we might expect that talking about something that is a hard topic, a topic where we have to face our mortality and in, in challenging circumstances head on, that going through that process uh, benefits us today and that it reminds us that, that death is kind of this accompanying thing that sits on our shoulder that gives our moments meaning, that makes us hyper aware of the gift that each day is and that ultimately causes us to become more loving, peaceful, compassionate people. And so I would encourage folks not only to engage in this process, to avoid a, an outcome that you'd be uncomfortable with in the future, but to step into a reality that may be more positive and more loving in the present moment. Thank you for that conclusion, both of you. I appreciate your taking all the time and your hard and your noble work. Thank you, Kim and Matt. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. My guests were Kim Callanan, President and CEO of Compassion and Choices, and Matt Whitaker, National Director of Integrated Programs at Compassion and Choices. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, Branda Lynn of Irvine Watchdog will return with the latest on the Irvine City Council. Then I'll resume the weekly new ritual of Inside the 45th with Laguna Woods resident, Mecha Franca. Thank you for listening, everyone. Talk with you next week.